So our scripture passage this morning comes from Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, I hope that you will keep your Bibles open with me to Romans. Uh, this morning, our uh, passage that we'll be giving attention to is Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, as we continue this series, The Gospel in Romans, The Power of God for Salvation. Uh, we have a prayer for the course of our time, uh, something we desire for the Lord to work in our midst uh, during our time in this letter of Romans, in which we see the gospel of God unfolding for us. Our prayer for this series is that over the coming years of study, on these fall, or during the course of this uh, spring series, year after year in Romans, that the Lord would build for us a foundation for our faith. Now, here's the reality. God has already built for us a foundation for our faith. We have a sure foundation. We have that foundation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, so what are we doing? Praying that God would build for us a foundation for our faith. Perhaps another way to put it would be this, that we would find our footing in the foundation that is there. Something like climbing a mountain. The, the mountain's already a sure foundation. The, the mountain is already there. It is already secure. It's already strong. But the business of the one who ascends the mountain would be to put their foot down in the crevices of the mountain and find their, their toe, finding its space in the mountain so that that, that that climber is secure in that place, well attached to the foundation that is already there. My prayer is that as we discover the crevices, the, the contours of this sure foundation of our faith, who is Christ, that we would find our footing there. And we could stand more strong and secure in this sure foundation. I believe that this letter of Romans does that for us. This is our prayer during our time. We began with a four-part mini-series. Uh, we did an introduction week five weeks ago, and then over the course of the last four weeks, we've walked through Romans 1 through 4, where we saw grace alone through faith alone. Then we walked through Romans 5 through 8, where we saw how salvation brings us from death to life. And then we looked at Romans 9 through 11, where we saw God's one message for salvation. And that's really, I think, a lot of the heartbeat of Romans. A lot of the purpose for which it was written was to see this gospel that's unpacked in one, Romans 1 through 8, then applied to this people, this Jew and Gentile church, that there is one message of salvation that makes them, therefore, one people together in Christ. And then in these, those final five chapters, Romans 12 through 16, we saw this appeal in light of the power of God, an appeal for a life lived together as the church in the midst of a watching world. That's the outline that we walked through over the past four weeks. And this morning, we go back to the beginning. We go back to Romans 1, and we consider Paul, the author of Romans, 
in verses 1 and 2, as we looked at in the introductory message a few weeks ago. And then we see that Paul has been set aside, set apart for this gospel, which was promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's verse 2. And this morning, we now turn to verses 3 and 4, where we see that Paul tells us that this gospel is concerning the Son. And that's the title of the message, Concerning the Son, who is, as we see at the end of our passage this morning, is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Man, those two words about Jesus, the Christ, our Lord, are going to be full this morning as we spend time in this passage. So let's begin in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we confess that this morning our topic, what is before us in the Word, is the greatest object of our study, the greatest labor of our attention, Lord, that we would consider the Son. Lord, this is is your purpose in the Gospel, that, that we would consider the Beloved, that we would see the Beloved that we would glorify the Beloved, that we would be caught up in and find our hope in the Beloved Son. So Lord, I pray that you would do this, that your Spirit would give us attention, would give us transformation even as we see the Son, that you would secure us to the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord, this morning in the midst of our time in Romans. Lord, we pray this, and we're sure it would come to pass because this is your divine purpose in redemption. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Concerning the Son, here it is. The first words of our verse, verse 3. Concerning the Son who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. The subject matter of Paul's opening sentence where he talks about the gospel of God is the Son. He told us that this gospel of God was promised through the prophets in verse 2. And now he tells us that this gospel of God, this good news, is concerning the Son. We'll see in just a minute that he has two things to tell us about the Son. You can see it already. I mean, the sermon outline, it's so simple. Anyone here who can can read the text can see what the outline needs to be if we're going to make this sermon about the text. It's going to be concerning the Son who was was descended from David and is declared to be the Son of God in power, okay? We're going to see these two things in a moment, but first, there are a few things that we ought to already see. The Son. This is who Jesus is from eternity. The gospel is concerning the Son, not someone who becomes a Son, not someone who is incarnated as a Son, but who is concerning the Son. This is Jesus, who he was and is and is to come. John chapter 1 holds that out for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and where the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God, this Jesus with God from the beginning. Jesus is. And secondly, Jesus is himself God. When we, we speak about the Son, this gospel concerning the Son, we're talking about the gospel of God concerning the Son, who is God. Okay? Romans 9, 5, and this is one of the things I really want us to do as we work our way through Romans. I want to reference Romans as much as possible. I told my wife that in the car this morning. She says, I hope you're going to reference Romans. That is your scripture this morning. 
Oh, no, no, we want to reference Romans. Yeah, of course, Romans 1, 3 through 4. That's what we're preaching on this morning. But we also want to reference the rest of Romans. We want to understand Romans in the context of what? Romans. So we go to Romans 9, 5. We see that Jesus is God. This Son, Jesus, is God. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. This Son, about whom is the gospel, is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now you put those two things together, and we have a core teaching of Scripture that Jesus is God the Son. Now, I hope that's not too big of new information for you this morning. But I hope that we can put our foothold on that through a couple of things. Let's remember a creed together. Let's remember the Athanasian creed. I'm just going to read some of this. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. And the Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is a description of the Trinity in the Athanasian Creed. And then it goes on like this. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller about the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal, co-equal with each other. Other, that though we can speak of the Son as begotten of the Father, he is not less than the Father. He is not after or before the Father. Though we speak of this Holy Spirit as proceeding from the Father and the Son, he is not they, the Holy Spirit is not after the Father and the Son. He is not below the Father and the Son, but rather co-eternal, co-equal with each other. This is what we speak of when we speak of concerning the Son. We're speaking of God. The gospel is about God. And specifically, God, the Son. Jesus is the Son. Jesus is God. Jesus is God, the Son. This is the eternal reality of Jesus. He's God, the Son. And the gospel is concerning him. Now, the gospel of God is the promise through the prophets concerning God, the Son. The gospel of God has been held out by the prophets. That's verse 2. And it is about God the Son. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son. The Father sends the Son. That's the gospel. He gave him up for us all. He, was, he will not also with him graciously give us all things. The gospel is the reality that God the Father sent God the Son. This is the good news that is being described in the Holy Scriptures according to the prophets concerning the giving of the Son. We can be assured that if the Father would send the Son for redemption, all the gifts of redemption are gloriously bountiful and eternally secure. Do you see, by putting our foot down real secure on thinking about the Trinity and thinking about this Son about which this gospel has its substance, by putting ourselves there, man, we're standing on a gloriously bountiful reality. And we are standing on something that is eternally secure. Ephesians 1 puts it this way, in him. 
in the Christ, in the Son, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. How lavish. Just how lavish. Just how rich are the, is the grace of our God. Well, he gave the Son. That's how rich. You want to measure that up? You measure up the eternal Father giving the eternal Son for our redemption. That's how lavish. That's how rich. You see, the gospel is not a set of good bits of advice. It's not a new kinder arrangement for human affairs so that we can make the world a better place. The gospel is an invasive grace gift. An invasive reality. It's a revelation. It's an inbreaking of a promise that the eternal Son of God has broken into creation history with the purpose of redemption in mind. This is an invasive reality that we're talking about when we talk about the gospel concerning the Son. It is through His righteousness, it's through His sacrificial death and His victorious resurrection power that we are called to, according to the passage just a little later on, to belong to him. We belong to him because the son is broken in, sent by the father to do the business of redemption, humanity to get it done. And that's what we're talking about in Romans 3 and 4. And one more thing I want us to see about the gospel of God concerning the son. When we encounter the gospel, we encounter something that is not first a matter between God and man. Now this is interesting. Rather, what we see is the gospel is concerning the Son. The gospel is a, is a work that is first of all, in at least logical priority, a relationship between the Father and the Son. In theological terms, this is called the covenant of redemption. From our perspective, the covenant of redemption comes to us through God's interactions with us. God's interactions with Adam and Adam's failure. God's interactions with Abraham and a promise to redeem. God's interactions with Eve, right? Adam and Eve right there in Genesis chapter 3 with a word of promise. The crushing of the head of a serpent, right? We have these various interactions with us, but from an eternal perspective, the perspective of God, his covenant is first between father and son. In the covenant of redemption, the son is sent by the father. And he's sent to take on human flesh. That's the incarnation. And he's sent to live a life of perfect submission to the Father. Don't miss that. You have God the Son, co-equal forever, with God the Father, taking on flesh in obedience to the commands of the Father. Perfect submission. And in so doing, he fulfilled all human righteousness. And he gives his life as a ransom through a sacrificial Death, a death that he doesn't need to die as God the Son, but he took on flesh according to the covenant between Father and Son. And he secures forgiveness of sin. That's why we call it redemption. And in the covenant of redemption, the Father grants to the Son. Because of all of his work in redemption, the Father grants to the Son victorious resurrection from the dead. And he secures for the Son an, an inheritance of eternal life for all of the redeemed, a throne from which the Son is to bless and to keep an eternal people 
This is the inheritance of the Son from the Father because of the work of the Son in redemption. And from that throne, he makes his enemies a footstool. Do you see Jesus? God the Son, in the gospel, concerning this Jesus, takes up all these things, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit. And the Spirit fills the redeemed with the presence of God to comfort the redeemed until the Son's return and to grant the gifts of the Spirit for the good of the church. This is the perspective of the gospel of God concerning the Son. You know, I think one of the most important things about this is We need to step out of the way sometimes. You're not going to get the gospel right if the gospel is of first and greatest importance about you. The gospel is concerning the Son. Here's a, a statement from the London Baptist Confession. I would encourage you to look this up on the podcast notes after uh, later in the week, and you can read through it more fully. But for now, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step. That's what it's talking about when it's talking about his prophets in the Holy Scripture, step by step, until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant that we see being played out through redemption history, this covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between Father and Son concerning the redemption of the elect. You see, the gospel is concerning the Son. What we have in the promise made known through the prophets is the revelation of a promise that's first entered into between God the Father and God the Son. So the Son takes on flesh in humility, and he's exalted in his death and his resurrection. And by these things, he secures for himself a people who, in verse 6, belong to Jesus Christ. They belong to him because the gospel is about him. Friends, that means that if you are in Christ, you belong to him. He has secured you to himself. Now, from our perspective, it's quite understandable that we think redemption is about us. But it's instructive that the first thing that we realize about the gospel in our passage is it's actually concerning the Son. Now, like I said, this outline is ready for us and we're well in. We haven't even really gotten to the first point that's unpacked. We've seen this gospel that is concerning the son, but what's the first thing that we're told about this son? Concerning the son, verse three, you've got it open, right? Concerning the son, his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. This is so important for us. Jesus is God the son. And the plan of redemption is that God the Son would take on flesh. And so in the scriptures, it was revealed that the Messiah, the Christ, would descend from the great king of Israel, David. This is God the Son taking on the flesh and setting himself in the line of a king who came before. But unlike David, who died, the Messiah would be the forever king. He was the king before David. David confessed this. But he comes in the line of David. David admitted this. And he would be David's king forever. Jeremiah 23.5 speaks of it. Jeremiah 23.5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. 
and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, execute justice and righteousness in the land. The gospel concerning the son is about the one who comes in the line of David. Descended, it says, descended from David. Now, I think about that. Remember, we're concerning the son. We're talking about God the son, and we're going to use a word like descended? How does that make any sense? What's What's the word descended when associated with God the son? Tell us about who he is. And there is a humility just right there in that word. Jesus, God the Son, he's not descended from anybody. Begotten, but not made. Begotten of the Father, but there's never been a time when he was not. But as it regards the incarnation, there was a time in which the flesh of Jesus was not. That's humility. That's humility for the God the Son to be sent by the Father to take on created flesh. His conception has a defined moment. His birth happened on a particular day. His flesh grew and aged. Again, back to the Athanasian Creed. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God and completely human. With a rational soul and human flesh. Equal to the Father as regards divinity. Less than the Father as regards humanity. All of that is right there sitting in that word descended for us to see. We can put our foot on that word descended and say, man, he condescended. He came down to be descended from David. Man, he's David's creator. (laughs) What's he doing descending from David? As if that was some great privilege for the Lord of creation. Except that he is not just the Lord of creation. He has a covenant to fulfill. A covenant in which he is not just the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of redemption. And that requires being descended from David. The gospel is concerning the son who descended from David according to the flesh. And in this, Jesus fulfills what was spoken of him through the prophets. This is what was spoken. So we have this Jesus, the gospel being concerning the son, and the son being descended from David. And the second thing that we're told in verse 3 concerning the son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Secondly, verse 4, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Declared to be the Son of God. The incarnation. That the the eternal Son of God, Jesus, descends from a human king, David, is a great act of humility. We've already seen it. But this is quickly followed up by a statement about Jesus' exaltation. He who humbled himself to descend from David is exalted. Verse 4 is a powerful statement that Jesus was declared to be Son of God in power. We're going to come back to that in a second. It's really one of the most important things that we can see in this passage. But first, I want us to see how the Son of God is declared to be this. What does it mean? Well, he's declared to be this by his resurrection from the 
dead. You catch that, right? Jesus died. He wasn't just descended from David. He took on the kind of flesh that could die. The eternal God, the Son, takes on flesh and dies. Don't pass over it. When we say that Jesus descended from David according to the flesh, we're really saying that he really was human life real. When we confess that Jesus resurrected from the dead, we're really saying that his body, his flesh, really did die. And when we say that he rose, we really are saying that a lifeless corpse began to breathe and is alive today. This is what we're talking about when we talk about the resurrection. All that's contained in the phrase resurrection from the dead. It is a historical, a real historical reality by which we come to know real spiritual power. This is one of my favorite things about the way that God interacts with history. Is that he interacts in history. Some of the, many of the things that we talk about in the Christian faith sound so lofty, so spiritual, so high, perhaps even philosophical. But there's nothing philosophical about a dead body in a tomb. There's nothing philosophical about a man hanging on a cross. There is nothing spiritual in that it's not real about a resurrection from the dead. And in these very tangible, in these very physical, in these very historically verifiable realities, we have to do business with what we can't see. You see, witnesses saw a man who was dead a couple days before, walking around alive and proclaiming the gospel. And so when we deal with the gospel, we're dealing with a resurrected man. God's work. In historical reality, gives us a glimpse and a confidence in the spiritual work of redemption. You see, if I just read a book about a philosophy manual by which I could have a different disposition in my soul toward some spiritual being by which I would be caught up into a greater force, I would think, that sounds really nice. How in the world am I supposed to know that's true? But when I When I hear about someone who has secured a life by his own resurrection, my question is, is he really raised? Did that actually happen? Were there witnesses? And what did he say that did? And all of a sudden, I have a grounding, a footing for my faith. We have a historically documented, verifiable eyewitness account to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that reality secures and confirms to us the promises of Forgiveness, eternal life, even our own future resurrection. I can't see that yet, but I can believe it on the foundation of a historical basis. I want to press this one more time. I said at the beginning of the message that when we consider the gospel, we aren't reflecting on a mere kindly way of being or a mere philosophy. One theologian professor writes, the great weapon with which the disciples of Jesus set out to conquer the world It was not a mere comprehension of eternal principles that honestly they could have made up in their own brains if they were smart enough. No, it was a historical message. 
an account of something that had recently happened. It was the message, he is risen. When we talk about resurrection, we're not talking about new life in spring. When we talk about the resurrection, we're talking about a dead body, now alive, and reigning in the eternal places. So grace is the character of God at work in historical reality. Man, if he's worked in history, can he work in me? It's by the invasive force of God the Son's entrance into space-time history that the power of God works redemption where there used to be only sin and decay. And he changes things. The resurrection from the dead is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, Romans tells us. By the power of God, he is secured in the resurrection, his place as head over a body who is the church. He is the head of a living thing because the head's alive. And he's gathered members to himself. That's how Paul is able to say in Romans 6, 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Man, sometimes I think about the future and I can't see it. I don't understand it. But I can look to the past and I can know my actual future. Declared. Now here's where we get into some fun stuff. Verse 4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So his resurrection from the dead ultimately declares something about him. And this is where we get where he descended, tells us about his humility. That he's declared tells us something about his exaltation. The word declared is an interesting one. It has a number of senses. Honestly, it's often translated in different ways in other places in the scriptures. Perhaps even in the translation you're using, it's translated in some of these other ways. It has, first of all, the, descent, the sense of, of determined to be. Determined to be the son of God in power. We discovered this is who he really is by the resurrection. Otherwise, he could have been, you know, just a thief who died on a cross. Maybe an insurrectionist, maybe a rebel, maybe a blasphemer. But by the resurrection, we, he is determined to be the son of God in power. At the resurrection, Jesus is discovered to be far more than, than all of the other things he might have been. But rather, he is the Son of God, just as he said. And so there's a sense that by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus is declared, determined to be the Son of God in power. And secondly, another sense is that he is appointed to be. I think this drives more closely to the sense of the word in this passage. Jesus was appointed or sent for this purpose. Jesus is the Son of God. But he is sent into redemption history in this covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son for the purpose that he would be revealed and declared as Son of God in power. The very power by which all who confess Christ would be saved. Jesus is sent for this purpose. Well, it's true that Jesus is the descendant of David. He's not nearly another in the line of ancient kings. While he performs many signs and wonders, he's not just another prophet. We've seen those before. Though Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, he wasn't another in the line of false messiahs, and there were a lot of them. 
It was by the resurrection that all may see and believe that Jesus has been appointed to a divine, redeeming office of power. He is the Son of God in power because we've seen his resurrection from the dead. This one sense, the one sense that is not here is that somehow he became the Son of God. Either at the incarnation or his baptism or resurrection, there are a variety of heresies that have tried to claim that Jesus was not the Son of God, but he was declared to be the Son of God at the resurrection or at the baptism or at the incarnation. He wasn't before, and now he is and declared to be so by some higher divine power. That There's no way for that sense to be here. He is declared to be the Son of God in power. Don't miss it. The gospel of God is already concerning the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ eternally. Yes, he takes up, he secures, and he reveals the messianic power. That's the purpose of his coming. But he does not become the Son of God at this moment. He's appointed and determined to be the Son of God in power. That perfectly fits the summary that Paul also gives in Philippians 2. And I would encourage you, write that down in the margin of your Bible here and go and spend time with it in prayer later this week. Your prayer is going to become worship really quick. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, it says, Therefore, in light of all of his condescending dissension and death, in light of his glorious resurrection and power, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus, who is Christ, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you see the the beginning of the covenant of redemption finding its fullness in a glory and an exaltation that is shared between Father and Son in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who is and always has been God the Son, has been exalted and bestowed a name above every name, an account on account of Jesus' perfect accomplishment of redemption, something that had not taken place in space-time fleshly history, has now taken place, in the resurrection. And Jesus takes up an eternal station. He is no longer only Lord of creation, and that is enough. He's Lord of redemption. He has a people who are his, and his throne doesn't just reign over all that is. His throne reigns over a kingdom that is his. This is what it means that he is declared to be the Son of God in power, in power. Jesus has taken up power. He's taken up authority on account of his accomplishment of redemption. And we're told how he wields that power. How is Jesus, God the Son, who's accomplished redemption, how does he wield power in history? Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came following his resurrection. He's taken up power to himself, and he says, To his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go 
and make disciples of all nations. How does the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of redemption, leverage his power to make the gospel known? The gospel that's concerning the son who has taken up power to make the gospel known. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 25 and 26, that great passage on the resurrection. says, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Oh, and that's a good day. And he's leveraged his power to put death to death on the foundation of what he's accomplished when he himself took up his life triumphing over death. On the authority of Jesus' resurrection power, every enemy of Christ and his redeemed are going to be defeated. So he can gather before his throne in perfect safety in his kingdom, the very presence of the king to reign, to secure redemption, and put death to death. I was tempted to, to read all of this passage, to even have it read before. Coming up here, Ephesians chapter 1. It's full and thick with this covenant of redemption. It shows up in, in the ideas of, of the, the revelation of the will of God, the divine purposes of God, as the passage puts it. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll just read verses 19 through 21. He speaks of what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Immeasurable? Yeah. Yeah, we're talking about the power of the one who has taken up life for himself. That kind of greatness. And he's leveraged that greatness toward us who believe. According to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Where is he? Far above all rule, all authority, power, dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Friends, I look at history, and he's, he's overcome everything in creation history. Even death will be defeated. And there's no history that we haven't heard about that's coming. He has secured a redemption in every age, even in the age that is to come. This is the Son of God in power. Now look at how this passage ends. Simply, before going on to verse 5 next week, the summary that Paul gives is Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is Paul's summary of everything that he said so far. It is the same gospel that Peter preached, isn't it? In that, that first day, as Peter stands up among all the people who have gathered in Jerusalem on that day of Pentecost. Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon. At the end of that sermon, he says in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, that all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You crucified him, but he's taken up his life to secure redemption so that he is not only the Christ, the Messiah who was to come, he is the Lord of redemption that he has secured. There's so much for us to learn here. There is really no other sermon that ever ought to be preached 
for the sermon that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the message. There is no other message but that which comes from and stands upon and gets its footing well in the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christ in his incarnate work and our Lord in his eternal reign. Man, there's so much more that we could unpack, so much more time that we could spend just in these couple verses, but thankfully, Romans keeps going, keeps unpacking it for us, and we'll, we'll give attention as we move. But like I said, at the beginning of our time together, we are experts in making the gospel about every other thing. Man, if there is, if there is a reality about what's true in our hearts, as, as Martin Luther says, our hearts are idol factories. We will make even the good news proclaimed by the prophets good news about me. Good news about my ability to, to live in light of a second chance and do better next time. Our ability to reorient our lives together in a way that's better than what we see around us. But this is not the gospel of God. The gospel of God is concerning the Son. My prayer this morning, it, I, I just I think it's one of the most practical applications we could give. Get your footing down in there, right at the front of our time in Romans. Get your toe way down in the crevice of that mountain and stand there secure. Explore the ridges of the doctrines that are in just these few verses so that you would stand on that which is secure. There's a, 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 a song, a hymn. Uh, I found it in a book called Passion for God by Ray Ortland. It's the Te Deum Laudamus, fifth century hymn. And it goes like this. Thou art the king of glory, O Christ. Thou art the everlasting son of the Father. When thou tookest upon thee to deliver man... Thou didst not abhor the virgin's womb, humility. When thou hadst overcome the sharpness of death, thou didst open the kingdom of heaven to all believers, exaltation. Thou sittest at the right hand of God in the glory of the Father, and we will see him. All who cry out, Jesus Christ, our Lord will see him because he's blessed us and he will keep us. Heavenly Father, what a glorious reality that, that the Son has secured the means by which all to come, who come in faith can cry out, Heavenly Father, our Father who is in heaven. We do so because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is right that we have this word laudamus in the hymn, a word that speaks of praise. Lord, I pray that as we get our foot deeper and deeper in the contours of your glorious, solid foundation, that we would stand there and sing. We would become a people of rejoicing that this is what redemption has accomplished for us. Lord, I pray for 
the one here today who's still in a place of, of, of an unsure footing. I pray that you would give them the boldness to confront those doubts, to not be afraid. You have power that you would give them the ability to, to name them and to work down into the reality that is Christ. You're not going anywhere. Thank you, Lord. Confirm faith. And for those of us who have believed but we're afraid, we're idolatrous, we're wandering, Lord, bless us. Keep us. Keep us in your grace. Confirm to us the gift of faith that is given from the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. That we would know your presence, that we would know your grace, and you would fill us and keep us to the end when we see you face to face. Ultimately, Lord, make of us not only a redeemed people, make of us worshipers who worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we trust you for these things. We trust you that these words in this moment are not just words to close up a speech. These are prayers that reaches the ear of the Father. They would be answered in our midst today. And so we pray in that powerful name. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.